Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Well, no. Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hall, and I am here with actor, producer, poet, Charles Reese. How you doing, good sir? I'm doing really good, sir. We are here in L.A. Chillaxing. <laughs> nice hat. Thank you, you very the, much. You got, the, you got the cool hat now. It's, it's, it's officially cool man spring. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's good. When, when you hear the word artist, What's the first definition that comes to your mind? Uh, um, probably James Baldwin's quote that says, artists are here to disturb the peace. And so as an artist, we're here to um, do just that. And peace is P-E-A-C-E. <laughs> and with all the things that are happening in our world today, I think um, what art does is it, it, it keeps us First of all, it keeps us sane. <laughs> um, and let me just backtrack a little bit. Um, I actually believe that everybody is an artist. Doesn't mean you just have to wield a pen. You don't have to be in front of a camera because uh, you can be behind the camera as well. Um, but in every form, art, I always like to say arts and sciences go together. <laughs> So we have all those folks that might be doing STEM, S-T-E-M, and we take and put the A in and we become STEAM. So that means that everybody has something to put their STEAM into. That's my new definition of art, using James Baldwin. Artists are here to stir peace. <laughs> now, it's not a coincidence that you brought up James Baldwin, and we're definitely going to get into that conversation. But I got to ask you, since you said it, What's an example that you've seen where art disturbed the peace? Well, that's every day. Uh, right now, we're having a strike. A writer's strike has just started today. How ironic is that? Where it's not my writer's strike. Well, it is. It is the um, Writers Guild are fighting for the right to um, have some more money. Let's just go straight there what that is. <laughs> um, um, and the way they're doing it is that they're using their voices and their time to go on strike. But I, as a member of the Screen Actors Guild, the uh, Actors' Equity Association, we have to support that because basically what's happening is, is that if they get what they need, hopefully it will be better for when we come behind to negotiate. So right now, in this day and time, art is being used. But I'll give you an example more so of how art has been disturbing the peace just throughout history. Um, we can just go back to the Harlem Renaissance back in the 20s, where more specifically, Black artists uh, would be writing poetry. There was Langston Hughes, there's Anna Bontemps. There are all of these wonderful, amazing people who were creating art simply for um, the fact that they wanted to express themselves uh, because we were coming post-slavery or the enslaved. We'll go into that. That's a long journey, but I just want to use that as a reference point because I started in the 1920s. There were things that happened before 1920s because in our generation, there we go, oh, we just think that all the things that we're creating now just kind of like popped up. <laughs> That's a right. whole history there that we have to deal with. But just getting back to the point of starting in the 1920s in the Harlem Renaissance, 
um, those people were there expressing themselves, utilizing art and culture. Then after the Renaissance, we kind of sort of had another whole shift. And I'm just going to jump into the 60s to the Black Arts Movement, where people like uh, you had your Woody Kings, you had the Negro Ensemble Company, and all of these organizations were using art as a tool to really help ignite, help in a lot of cases, really um, supporting things like a Martin Luther King, a civil rights movement. So art has always been the catalyst that really keeps kind of sort of the fire kind of sort of moving. And sometimes it puts out fire. What was your first introduction to the arts when you were coming up? Wow. That's you're from D.C., right? Born, raised, and potty trained in Washington, D.C., which So pre-gentrified D.C. was... black unapologetically. Um, But now I say, yeah, apologetically, well, unapologetically, excuse me, is really the real word for that. Um, And remember, D.C. is not a state. We're kind of sort of a territory of the United States. We are the capital. We We have something that's called home rule. I want everybody to say that with me. When you hear this say home rule, home rule in Washington, D.C. simply means that we have the rights like we are a state, but we don't have the representation. Ergo, ergo, ergo. I always have to say that three times. Therefore, when it comes to the elections, Washington, D.C. receives three electoral college votes, but we don't have two senators in the Senate and we don't have a person in the House of Rep. We have a non-voting delegate that sits in the House of Rep. They're kind of sort of more, more so a negotiator trying to make sure things can happen in D.C. So I, I would like to start there because a lot of people don't realize what that issue is. And so if D.C. is to become a state, then it would be D.C. the state. And then that'll change a lot of things. But I'd like to just let you know, that's what we live, that's what I grew up under in that whole process and trying to understand, you know, those things. But at the time I grew up, late 60s, um, I'm a proud 60-year-old, very happy about that. Um, I, so I, I grew up late 60s, I grew up in the 70s, came to D.C., uh, and then, then we had, of course, the 80s and the 90s. But during my time, we had art in school. Basically, I took, I learned how to play the trumpet, the baritone in my junior high school. I had a teacher by the name of Mr. Hoover. I would start starting in seventh grade. I started learning how to play the trumpet. And in September, by March, I was marching in the Cherry Blossom Parade in Washington, D.C., playing my horn and everything and learning how to read music. So I went to Scott Montgomery Elementary School, 421 P Street, which is now a kid school. I went to Shaw Junior High, the old one that was on um, 7th Street and Rhode Island called Ashbury Dwellings. It is now a senior citizen's home. And I went was the first student in the new Shaw, which is on which is on Rhode Island Avenue and 10th, which was an open space school. We had no walls in our school. No walls. I could see the English class going on. Uh, I could be in English and I could see math over there. I can see science over there. And you had to stay focused. But the band was in the basement area, so that's where you, you had some space down there. And the most exciting thing about our school is that we had a t- we had TVs in our school. I was on I was delivering the news. I had to get up early in the morning to deliver the news each day. 
And so this is this is pre social media. So I would you, we would go to homecoming and you I would be on the up in the morning time doing sports and doing the daily news for the when you were in your homeroom, you got to see us on TV. We had TV production in Alton High School. You can imagine that. Um we had Marin Barry, who was our mayor. Um he was one of the first elected mayors. And I had my first summer job in a program called Focus, and I'll stop here stands for Future Occupations and Careers for Urban Students. So I had all of that. I did the Wiz when I was in junior high school two times. I even played in the band before I did my role in the Wiz. That was what art was like in Washington, D.C., early 70s, going into 81 until I graduated from high school. During these early this early journey, was there any influences you were looking at and aspiring to be, or were you just too in the moment? I think you just hit it on the point. I was just in the moment. I think I was the youngest of seven children. We all kind of sort of went to the same junior high school, elementary school, junior high school. It was when we got to high school that we all swapped out. But um, I had some of the same teachers that I, I got all the same teachers that my sisters and brothers got. And so they were like, they knew your family. Um, I think my biggest inspiration is someone that I'm still in contact with now. We had a daycare program, after school program when I was in the third grade. And so, you know, you do your classes. So from three to six o'clock, I had this guy by the name of Mr. Kenny Long. And so in your after school program, he taught us how to crochet, karate, everything. We had our homework and everything done by six o'clock. I could cut through the backyard and go home. So by the time I got home at six o'clock, my homework was done. I was having dinner. We made her watch one little bit of television. But when Roots came on, we had to watch Roots seven nights in a row. <laughs> so that was the big thing when Roots came on. Uh, and we discussed it in school the next day. So Mr. Kenny Long is probably one of my great influencers. And as a matter of fact, he is still my friend today. I just celebrated his 75th birthday just last weekend. He now lives in California. He, uh, he left us because he wanted to pursue his career in art and culture and as an actor, came out to L.A. He says, when you graduate from school, come and see me. Well, guess who did that? <laughs> I found him after I graduated from Morehouse College when I moved to L.A. And we've been friends ever since. Okay, so you threw that in there. You're, you're a Morehouse alum. So we both own here at HBCUs. I went to Howard. So, you know, I got to take that moment. That's just what it is. <laughs> well, I'm going to take this moment. H.U. You know. <laughs> so yeah, I gotta take that moment. Are you knowing that you want this to be a career when you're coming out of high school, or is it still a part of your education experience when you get to college? You know what? I didn't know it was a career. As a matter of fact, I was a I come from the Coke bottle glassware. These are nice and thin now, these glasses. <laughs> but those of you who are listening, I wore glasses from a time I was like about six years old. So they got thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. I was this shy kid just trying to deal with my Coke bottle glasses and just taking the classes and doing what was offered. I mean, all of the stuff I'm talking to you was just offered. It was free. There was my parent, my mom didn't have to pay for any music classes. They were all in school. You could go to vocal. Everything was there. So I think I stayed busy in a way where the art and culture was just an enjoyable thing for me. I actually went into Morehouse as a psychology major. And 
I'll, I'll give Howard University some other credit how, to how I got to Morehouse because I lived around the corner from Howard. I was at 503 Rhode Island Avenue. So we didn't have Kaplan classes to study for your SAT and all that. I went over to Crampton Auditorium on Saturdays with uh, uh, students and folk of Howard University to help me take my SAT. Mm. And that's how I got into Morehouse because they work with me on Saturdays. So, so ain't nothing wrong with that unity. Yeah, well, so, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm giving profit. To, I mean, Morehouse yeah. is give, more, Howard is given to Morehouse and Morehouse is given to Howard. Mordecai Jazz. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing it, wrong it, with that. It, 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 I always like people know, people always go, this is rivalry. But it, the wonderful thing about historically black colleges is that um, when you go to one, you are nurtured in a way that you won't be nurtured in this world ever again. Ever. Good, bad, or indifference. Yeah, I actually went to a predominantly white college first, transferred to Howard. And I make it very simple when people ask me the difference. When I was in a white college and I didn't show up for class, I came back the next day, nobody asked any questions. When I missed class at Howard and showed up the next day, my professor was like, yo, where were you yesterday? There's just a big difference. Yeah. Just a big difference. You know, that's one of the things in that. So, I mean, you major in something completely different from what you're doing when did it started clicking to you that this can be something that you can actually do professionally well i'm gonna drop back one no i like i said i started as a psychology major but i finished as a mass communication slash theater public relations major with a minor in psychology <laughs> that's and a switch yeah, and, and 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 you talk to your parents about you tell your parents you want to go into something called the arts. They're like, well, now listen, we gave you all those classes and things to keep you going. We didn't think that was going to like influence you in any way, um, and it really didn't at the time. I just I will say that I'm very thankful because every class that I had, music, everything, I I use them. I don't I don't I can still pick up a trumpet today if I choose. I can still read music. Um, and I might not know how to do all the other thing, a lot of other things, but what happens is, is that when I go into a room, I can use, I have all these things in my toolkit to pull from. The music class is coming day now because I use music in everything that I do. I mean, I even kind of sort of talk sing, so to speak. <laughs> that's my specialty. <laughs> um, so I just, that's why I wanted to jump back. So I, when I got to Morehouse, I came in with the site stuff and that's what I want to do because I had a mentally challenged sister growing up and I thought I could cure everybody as a psychotherapist. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I had to get some help myself. So it, it all worked out pretty well. But prior to me getting to Morehouse, I do have to just do a kind of sort of sidebar. I was in a program called High Skip. And if you notice, I'm calling all these programs out. So, um, so if people are from Washington, D.C. and all over the world go, these are the things that are missing in our institutions now and in our school systems now and i'm not saying they're going to put them all back really quickly but i had all those things to like play with so i didn't have time to think about where i was going to major but when i had to make a decision i was I, I was clear in my mind thought because i had music over here i could go over here at a daycare program where i had someone that watched me from three to six to help me with my homework if my parents didn't understand the algebra someone was there to help out that's the village mentality. I want to make that very clear. But I was in a program called High Skip. And I want you to know that I've named about several programs in DC. There was a focus program, 
was getting my summer jobs. There was a high skip program. High skip allowed me to be in high school and college at the same time in my senior year when I was at McKinley Tech. So I was I only had two classes to do in my senior year. That's all I had to do. I had government and I had to do one English thing. And then the rest of my day was free. What do you do with a person who used to having all these things? You let them go to college. So I was going to the University of District Columbia and McKinley at the same time. <laughs> and so what that did was I had college credits when I got to Morehouse. So that gave me that that gave me that play around. So I was going to the University of District of Columbia. The, the Connecticut campus was brand new during my time there. UDC kind of sort of for people who are in the DC area, it's a school that's kind of sort of all around the city. There's a lot of well, they would call them community colleges like Strayer, Teachers College. They put all those schools together and it became UDC. As a matter of fact, a piece of UDC when I was going to class was up with uh, Howard University. There was one building that actually belonged to UDC up on near the hill for a number of years. And people were going, that's not Howard, that's UDC. So they kind of sort of got the whole campus, well, the majority of the campus and moved to one area, which is on Connecticut Avenue. So my senior year, I was going to McKinley Tech, I was going to UDC, and I joined UDC's band. So on the weekends, I was going to historically black colleges. So when they would play Johnson C. Smith, I would go play on the weekends and come back and go to school on Monday. So a very unique, this is Washington, D.C. It was called the High Skip Program. And so I earned, I had 12 credits. So I started taking my psych classes in my senior year of high school. So I'd already had one year up. So I was kind of like going in Morehouse as a sophomore, but you know how those transfer credits work. You lose a few. Yeah. Um, but eventually, uh, by, by the time I got to the end of the year, they did accept all the credits. So I just had to notice that high skip programs, these are pro- I had this program. And so when I got to Morehouse, I was like, okay, I, I, I understood the semester system. That's the thing that happens with folks going, we study in school systems and you get your grade, you know, you know, uh, these different quarters. But in college, it was like, that's your grade. That's it. <laughs> After that semester, you go to another class. And so we stayed in a whole year system. And UDC helped me understand that system. That was one of the biggest transitions that I had to try to understand. And we're going to talk about how the, all the finances and all of that stuff were. But that was my big understanding, transitioning from high school when you're getting your grades quarterly and then that's your whole year thing and going to a, a semester system so when i got to morehouse basically i ran into a gentleman by the name of lamar alfred everybody just had to say lamar alfred lamar alfred lamar alfred lamar alfred was the original um a member of godspell the musical and when i got there he had returned back to morehouse after having this whole career on broadway and being in New York, and he became a teacher. And he was doing this play called What Drove Molly Mad? It's about a black woman musical about a black woman who went mad because of racism. And I saw that and I was like, ooh, I want some of that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I got into a musical called Three Penny Opera by Berto Brett. And from that point on, I changed my major, but I didn't tell my mom. Oh, you were becoming the quintessential adult. I'm doing what I want to do. The first brave step 
into adulthood, as they say. Like, even though I'm going to tell my mama later, but right now being this adult in my room, this is what I want to do. And you make that decision and you can quite kind of say that's like a very significant decision because that sets you on the path to where you are now. When you graduate from Wives, do you instantly say, yo, I'm going to hit the stage. I'm going to go to Broadway. I'm going to go film. I'm going to go to California. I'm going to go home and tell my mama. Like, what happens to you in that point? Well, your mama has to come to graduation. <laughs> Let's just start there. Your mama, your aunt, your sister. You graduate. You graduated for your whole family. And the degree wasn't even mine. I gave it to my mama. She kept it. God rest her soul. I got it back just before she passed away. It was her. She earned it. That was the goal for that. To really answer that question, um, when I left Morehouse, I cried. Because I was like, wow, I have this family. And I was actually so nurtured. I didn't realize what I was going to do afterwards. I, just, I was in an environment where I was just... I, I was doing my work. I was doing what I was able to do. There were now there were challenges. There were financial challenges. There were a lot of different challenges. And if you live long enough, you just don't have them. <laughs> you know, uh, it's how you respond to the challenge or let their challenge respond to you. Think, let that just sit for a second because I just said that out loud. And when I go back, my, I'll, when I go back and listen to this, I'll have to listen to that for myself and let that just sit in my brain. But when I left Morehouse. I didn't have a job. I was happy. I was 22, free, still in my mindset. Um, I did something really unusual. I came back home to D.C. after being free for four years, and now I'm in my mother's house. What do you do? I got on a plane with a one-way ticket, and I went to Paris looking for James Baldwin. Now, that is a trip. Yeah. I thought that's what I needed to do. Now, let me give you a little context and why I went looking for James Baldwin. I did a, he was a good friend of mine, and, and he told me to come. I ran into James Baldwin in my freshman year at Morehouse College. And uh, because when I arrived to Morehouse College in 1981, there, were a, there was a case. It's called, some people call it the Wayne Williams case. You might know it better as the Atlanta child murders. Well, my freshman year, they were starting to get jurors for that case. And James Baldwin was on the scene because he was writing or uh, doing an article for Playboy magazine around the Wayne Williams case. And these magazines always understood where their audience was. That's when people usually they go, we'll put it there. Somebody will read it. And so I was coming across campus uh, trying to get to my curfew because the Wayne Williams case was dealing with an over 20 plus black children, young adults, teenagers that were murdered somewhere between 1978 all the way through 1980. And so they found Wayne Williams was the person that they found. And so Baldwin wanted to know, well, who is this Wayne Williams? And it just so happens that people in my uh, undergrad years, a lot of people went to school with Wayne Williams. So they knew him. And they were saying, I don't think he's the one that he could have done all of them. And by the way, I'm, I'm going to jump forward and I'm going to come back. He only got convicted, if I'm not mistaken, for only two of the murders. So there's still unanswered questions. So Ball was on the scene during that. And 
the one encounter that we had still stays for me today. I was running across campus trying to go into my curfew. He was coming across, and I looked at him. He looked at me. He says, my, you have eyes like mine. And I, as a young 18-year-old, said, thank you. And I ran. I ran. <laughs> I ran. I ran away. And here I am four years later, for whatever reasons, finding my way to go back to go to Paris is... I said, why don't I just do that? By that time, of course, Baldwin, I had read a lot of, I had read some Baldwin. I remember that little thing. I would say maybe he had put something in my brain there to go, oh, yeah, I was like, man, maybe I should just go on your pathway. So I kind of sort of started going on Baldwin pathway in the journey, not knowing where it has led me to today. So I took that trip to Paris and we got to Paris. I went with a dear friend of mine. His name was Howard Simon, and he's now gone. But we went together, got to Paris, <laughs> found out that James Baldwin was not in Paris in the summer of 1985. He was in the United States. And so there was no social media then. And so now I'm in Paris. Now what I'm going to do? <laughs> we stomped some grapes. We sang on some street corners and did what we had to do. And finally came back. And then I decided to go to Los Angeles. After stopping Houston, Texas, by the way. Yeah, you know, I have to ask this, and I didn't even write this down, but what is it about Black artists' voices in Paris and the relationship with that? Black American artists in, in Paris? Because you going to search for James Baldwin it might sound crazy to a lot, but if you know the history of James Baldwin, he spent a lot of time in Paris. He lived there. He talked about it all the time, how he went there. You got the greats like Josephine Baker and all kind of other black artists who went to Paris. What is it that you can say or you think is that kind of relationship with black artistry? That's a good question. Um, one of the things that um, and I probably learned this more now, but I, um, there was all, you named you. I think you, you hit it on the head. You asked the question, but you also gave some wonderful answers that I can pull. There was Josephine Baker who went to Paris. Langston Hughes went to Paris. Of course, Baldwin went to Paris in 1948 is when he left New York to go to Paris. And so there are all these examples of what we call black expats or expatriates who go over to Paris. A lot of people leave because of their dis-ease. That's the word I'm going to use uh, with America. I, I love one of James Baldwin's quotes here that just kind of sort of hits me right now. It's called, um, go the way your blood beats. If you don't live the only life that you have, you won't live some other life. You won't live any life at all. So just go to Paris, go to Europe, be free. Um, and a lot of cases where Paris has its problems as well. It's not perfect, but it's, there was some type of freedom with Josephine Baker going when she went, she kind of like set the pace. You have lots of artists and musicians, but also the country, the country being the United States had a lot of programs for artists to go to perform. That's a lot, but a lot of people don't realize that that was also a part of the process as well. But in most cases, we find Josephine Baker's case, um, Langston Hughes, Baldwin, Richard Wright, you know, um, and all of these folk, they were there because they needed to be free to bear witness, as Bob would say. They're there to write, get their stories done, and by the time they come back to the United States, they have built careers, they are respected in the areas, good, bad, or indifference. 
in a lot of cases, a lot of cases, they were considered, you know, art artists, the whole term artists as activists. They were the pre-artist activists at their time. I mean, the fact that Josephine Baker could leave St. Louis and defy and go to Paris and make the Follies Verger what it is. I mean, she put places on the map. She even represented folk in wartime. I mean, um, and she holds a very special place in Paris. But all I say all that to say, even though with all the Black expats who's gone over, it doesn't mean that they're not, they don't have challenges and things of that nature. So I think the excitement of it all for me and the thrill of it, that the fact that there were people who had gone on probably gave me the, and that's the word I'm going to use today, to take that journey with very little money in my pocket, not knowing how I'm even going to go from day one and day two. But that's what's called the urgency of fierceness when you're 22. You have no bills. Well, the college ones that you didn't pay attention to, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> I like that. But it, it also feels like a full circle moment because the James Baldwin, A Soul on Fire, it's a short play that you are in that reimagines what happens when James Baldwin, that famous meeting of him, Lorraine Hansberry, Harry Bonafonte, Lena Horne, when they had that roundtable discussion with attorney, then Attorney General Robert Kennedy. And let me just say on the side, I got reintroduced to James Baldwin when I Am Not Your Negro came out. And I've, I've talked about this on podcasts and even in my writing. And I, I just became back in awe because, you know, James Baldwin is like someone that you read about in school. And I, you know, like I did work if a teacher assigned me and, you know, it is what it is. But when I saw that doc, I, I just was like in awe of the of of him as a as an individual. And I fell back in love with his work and it's everything since that documentary for me has been James Baldwin, you know, in that mm-hmm. that particular meeting when they're talking with Robert Kennedy, why was that something that you were drawn to when it comes to this project? Oh my, this might be an eight part of series now. <laughs> um, I think, um, I think by the time I, I, I'd gone to Paris in 85, didn't get to see Baldwin. Baldwin didn't pass us away two years later. As a matter of fact, this is the 35th anniversary of Baldwin's death, by the way. He's been gone for 35 years. Um, so I, I never got to meet him again. Um, I, as an actor, was always told by my mentor, Virginia Capers, and I'm dropping great names of people who kind of sort of really helped me along the way. Virginia Capers won her Tony Award for the musical version of Raisin on Broadway back in the 70s. She became my coach and she said, you know what, baby, you are going to have a very different career than anybody else. Everybody's journey is different. So what I would suggest is you always have something in your pocket, maybe a solo show or something of your own that you can always go back to. And that's how we got to this whole balling piece. Initially, I wanted to be a solo piece and it ended up being a two-character piece. Um, And I've been working on this piece for the last 25 years. Yeah. I, uh, it was written for me in 1999 by my dear friend who I went to Paris with, Howard Simon. He gave it to me as a birthday gift. I was like, okay. And so um, the whole thing was put on me by an acting coach 
who simply said, have something of your own that you can always do no matter what. And to this day, I say thank you um, because you know, we have a strike today that's going on. Other things are going on. I can still give a ball no matter what. So I encourage people mm. to think about that. It doesn't matter whether you're in the arts, whether you're doing sciences, whether you're a therapist, what do you have that you're so passionate about that will turn into income and other things? Because that what you're passionate about is what fills you up. And even when you're getting things or not getting things. If I tell you how many times I've been told no, and no simply means to me, I just simply spell it backwards. It's on. So I was inspired by people to do that. But what, what's most importantly, I found me a good writer who's no longer here with me, but now I'm in charge of the work. And so we wrote around the history of this piece. And so it's, you know, historical fiction is what it is. We reimagine what could have happened, uh, or re- I could say what did happen. We reimagine that whole concept in a theatrical way. And let me just give a big shout out and thank you to the late Hera Belafonte because um, the meeting is so significant because one, it deals with artists who are going to a meeting to help the uh, attorney general, to help his brother, who's the president, to talk about race relations in America in 1963. Now, check this out. It is the 60th anniversary of that actual meeting. The meeting occurred on May the 24th, 1963. So we're coming up on the 60th anniversary in actually 22 days. For those of you who are listening, it's the second of today. And so if you add 22 more days on, you're in a history. So I was inspired by a teacher to do this, got a writer, and we were inspired by a chapter in David Leeming's book called James Baldwin, A Biography. In chapter 22, it was a section called Activists. And that's where I actually found and discovered the history. And it was that chapter that the writer used, and, and we started finding footage. You've actually seen footage of Baldwin talking after the meeting. The meeting wasn't recorded. It's more of a... Um, digital file where someone did type what happened. But after the meeting, Baldwin went to a radio station with Dr. Kenneth Clark. And I have to do a sidebar on Dr. Kenneth Clark. I know I'm throwing a lot of names, so I like trying to verify who these names are. But Dr. Kenneth Clark was a psychologist who did the Brown versus Board of Education doll study in 1954 to help desegregate schools. So he was at the meeting, but he and Baldwin went to talk on a radio station after the meeting. Then you have Lorraine Hansberry, and I am fortunate to know Lorraine Hansberry's sister, who lives down the street from me, who just turned 100 years old this past week, and I celebrated her 100th birthday this past Friday. I'll send you some of those pictures. Uh, just so you have the historical references, because you never know, you might want to talk to Lorraine Hansberry's sister. This is the, Lorraine Hansberry's sister. Her name is Mamie Hansberry. She actually was in the house in that they talk about in Raising the Sun. She told me the real stories and what really went down. So history 
as Nikki Giovanni says, histories are important because they point us toward the direction of our traditions. And we are oral people. So a lot of times I like to pause and say, hey, if I mention that name, because whoever listens to this, this becomes a historical point of reference where you can verify all this information that you're receiving through your auditorial systems, auditory systems, your hearing and all of that. Um, so basically, that's um, um, what really inspired me. It was a teacher who said, hey, you need to have this. Brought me right back to Baldwin. <laughs> so that one meeting, see what a one little meeting and the link just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So that's kind of sort of how I got on this journey. And the journey is interesting. It keeps unfolding and taking you different places where I was like, really? Really? And as much as I, well, a lot of people go, oh, I, I have a career in this and the other. I have a career as an artist, as an actor. I'm an author. And more so, I like to call myself a cultural architect for public engagement. And I'll say that again, cultural architect for public engagement. And for short, it's a CAPE, C-A-P-E. And my job is to be an artist within that, be a, um, someone that's sustainable in history. But I use Baldwin, this particular work, to get people into Baldwin. Because if you can just use one example, you'll go read something else. Like, I'm not your Negro. I love that piece. I got to meet Raul Pat. And most of the things that happen today, I'm able to incorporate them in my conversation. So I'm not your Negro. I use that as a teaching tool for young kids, specifically eighth graders. I like hearing that. What, what is it about that meeting that you feel is so significant to, to, to us right to, to, to this day? What is it about that meeting? I mean, the attorney general is gathering the who's who. What is it about that meeting with Robert F. Kennedy and James Baldwin, Lorraine Hyasbury? What is it about that meeting that you felt was so significant to revisit? Because we're having meetings today or need to have meetings today where we need to gather people. And that's and that, and that and whatever level that might be. It can be in your church. It can be in your fraternity. It could be right here where we are now. The big thing about that meeting and the question that I always have to um, present to people, if we were going to go to a secret meeting today in America, what would be the agenda and who would you take? Because the thing that Baldwin did was, remember, Kennedy came to Baldwin because at the time of the meeting, or at the time prior to the meeting, Baldwin had written The Fire Next Time. Another point, The Fire Next Time is 60 years old. As a matter of fact, let me just do this right now because I think this is a great point. This is the 60th anniversary of everything in 1963. One, the fire next time is 60 years old. The letter from the Birmingham jail that Martin Luther King wrote to admonish all of these ministers about becoming allies. If you're not an ally, you're not helping the situation. Go back to your people and you tell your people that what the problem is and what they can really do. Letter from Birmingham jail. Then you have the meeting, the, the secret meeting in 1963 that was in May. In June 1963, Mega Everest got shot Mississippi. The march on Washington was on August 28, 1963. Four little girls in Alabama, September. 
and the president of the United States got shot in November. All of that happened in 1963. Wow. I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't even think that's about why I always like to stop wild. and pause. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, that's a hell of a year. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a year. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. All of that art <laughs> and all of that was going on just in 63. And so what we're experiencing now, right now, with all the political environment is a reaction, a reaction to a, a reaction. So 60 years ago, those were reactions. Look at the reaction that we're having now. So taking meetings, um, that's always my word, um, the take home to folks that come see me do what I do is like, when you leave here, what type of meeting do you want to have? And it can be just a meeting going back, talking with your brothers, your sisters about where they are, what is the agenda, what, what, what do we need to do, or what can we do, if anything. Um, so you take the two young brothers down in Tennessee. Somebody went to have a meeting to vote them out. And then somebody else went to have another meeting to vote them back in. There's always a meeting going on. somewhere. Like the song says, walk together, children, don't you get weary. Walk together, children, don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. Do, do you think that there's a difference between when celebrities go to the White House now or meet with a public official now versus what they did then? Like, is, is there a fundamental difference or do we just get upset at who they invite? Oh, there's a fundamental difference. I mean, the fundamental difference is okay. in actually mentality and who controls your pocket strings, strings when you do go to a White House or in any room. Let's take Harry Belafonte because that's what we can utilize. Harry Belafonte, along with Ozzie Davis, were really the people who funded actual physical dollars to get Martin Luther King out of the Birmingham jail. They used their celebrity to pack money in their clothes so they could be, be of service. They were more of service. So you have different types of services now. So you, most, in most cases, you find celebrities these days, they have um, foundations and they use foundations as a tool. Back then, you needed physical cash. And so the presence of a um, Belafonte of a Davis because of their distinction and they had on suits, they could pocket money and nobody would bother them so they can go get people out of jail. We weren't wiring, you know, you didn't wire, you didn't have a uh, cash app, you didn't have a Zelle. How did they get the money? Somebody had to fly on a plane. So celebrity was used very, their celebrity was very different from the celebrity today. The celebrity, the reason why the people have the celebrity today it's because of what those people did then. They're able, you can use your celebrity in a lot of different ways, but people, people have all types of choices. So just to really hone in on this, so this can really make sense. Celebrity, then celebrity now. I don't like to say, who's my Harry Belafonte today? A lot of times they'll say it's Jesse Williams. I mean, you put these people in these boxes, you know, no one, we don't happen to have a, a, a Harry Belafonte the, the person today doesn't have to be like the Harry Belafonte, but you can use Harry Belafonte as an example of what it can be. But we have to use the new tools that we have now. The Zell, the whatever, whatever, whatever. But that's a lot of tracking that goes with that. Those brothers didn't want those dollars tracked because if they found out they had a money on the plane, then King would still be in jail. Now, Baldwin was different type of activist, artist, celebrity. 
as a writer, he used the power of his pen. Technically, Baldwin, and he said this in I'm Not Your Negro, he really didn't belong to one specific group. He was kind of sort of, I guess I'll use this term free, he was sort of a free agent. So he could go to Elijah Muhammad's home in Chicago, run to San Francisco to talk about this with the Panthers, then come back over here to be over here with King, because he was at the March in Washington, then go, he was, and then he was down in Birmingham, but then he would run all the way back to Paris. So this brother was bearing witness in a way, and it wasn't, it wasn't safe for him. It was, all of this was very dangerous territory. Harry, Ozzie Davis, all of those folk were in danger to be killed at any moment. And not saying you're not in danger now. When you and I walk out on the street, we're in danger to anything. You go out and get hit by a bus. You go out and fall on the street, somebody run over you. Any, you're always in danger of something. But that type of danger of fighting and trying to work on a movement. These young brothers in Tennessee, you notice they're calling it a movement. Because we are back in a movie in history, about every 50 to 60 years, we're in a movement. So 60 years later, we were in a high area, a high time of civil rights movement. And now here we are 60 years later, trying not to get that clock to get reversed. So what meetings are we going to? Who are we gathering together? And, um, and it doesn't take a lot of people. It takes a lot of energy to get things like moving so that we can... Uh, Avoid going back, back into a time that not necessarily good for any of us. Describe to me what your interpretation of the title, James Baldwin, A Soul on Fire. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Um, well, just to be honest with you, the first title of the play was not James Baldwin, A Soul on Fire. It was just simply called James, A Soul on Fire. It was Woody King, and I have to give him credit for that, who says, well, nobody's going to know who James is. It could be James Wilson. It could be James. Who's James? And so we ended up. But a so long fire is that Baldwin was a fiery spirit. He and, um, then we were inspired, of course, by the fire next time. Um, so Baldwin's always this fiery person. So the title to me, um, it, first of all, it made sense to have that title. And now as I am looking back and the fact that you're asking me this question, um, it's still a soul on fire because now we're in a fiery time where my, our souls need to either be washed, cleansed, revived, reimagined, rediscovered, re, re, all the wreaths that you can put behind the wreath. Reclaim our souls. Baldwin was a... Um, was a young preacher. I think a lot of people don't remember that. If you get a chance, go see Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go Tell It on the Mountain was his first book. It actually was turned into a film with the young Ving Rains, CCH Pounder, Alfred Woodard, a lot of other wonderful people. And it was actually shot in my undergrad years. It was shot like in 84, 85, just around my graduating years. And one of my acting teachers was actually in that movie. Paul Winfield plays Baldwin's father. Uh, Olivia Cole, so many amazing people in it. But this whole Go Tell It on the Mountain was kind of sort of Baldwin's coming of age in life where he was working on his soul, so a soul on fire. 
you know, something that always kind of sort of working with. And so the title today is, it, 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 it's so fascinating to me that you'll do a piece of work and then it's one way 24 years ago. When you get to year 25, it's going another way. But it's, it's, it's that thing that it's the gift that keeps on giving. I think that's the best way I can say it. I got to play as a gift, and the gift keeps on giving. I'm going to be on my way to um, be at Amsterdam to do this piece in July as part of Emerson College's James Palmer's Writer's Colony. We've been off for about three years because of COVID, and so we're returning, and I'm going to be doing it at a theater um, in um, Amsterdam in July. And what I'm doing these days is not the play itself. I'm doing what's called an evening in history with James Baldwin featuring Charles Reese. Talk about myself and another person. But we have moved the play from a play version to a, commerce, a, a performance conversational series. Are you still there? Because yeah. you kind of went away over here. Okay, cool. Three, two, one. What is it that you'll say about James Baldwin work? Why... Why is it still relevant even today? You just said like 60 years later, we're still having these conversations about his work. Why do you think that is? Well, the world goes round and round and round and round until we learn the lessons, we repeat them, we repeat them, and we need the work to help us through. I think James Baldwin, to me, is like, I think he's one of the most prolific writers in the 20th century. I think that if you look on all the social media things, people no ball went through social media, but that doesn't mean that actually red ball. You can now see more clips than you can ever see before. You see more ball and quotes everywhere. I'm just trying to get people just to read it a little bit. And I might not get through all of Baldwin's work in my lifetime unless I, you know, sometimes I find myself just reading stuff um, periodically. But, you know, it, it, he... He needs to be ingrained into systems all across the United States and globally. And my approach will be this time is to uh, work on the global Baldwin as a global citizen. Because remember, he died in he died in well, he died in Saint Paul de Vines. And just a little sidebar: his house is no longer in Saint Paul de Vines, which is just right outside of Nice. I actually have a brick, a piece of a brick from his home. That's that's dope. I. I I just got just two more, you know, questions. Which part of Baldwin's work resonates with you personally, like to this day, for you? Uh, here's a book. It's called Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone. That's my book. A lot of people don't read that book. But that's a book about an actor who ends up having a challenge on the stage, as a matter of fact, and he has to work his way off the stage because of the child. I try not to give the story away, as you can see. <laughs> I want you to go read. So I'm just going to say he has a challenge in the course of the play. Um, and during the course of this play, while he's doing his play, he's going back in the back of his mind, looking at his life while he's doing the play. <laughs> so to speak. Um, and there's a lot of wonderful things there. That, that, that's one of my favorites. Um, I also would recommend people to look at the evidence of things not seen. I think we spoke earlier about the Wayne Williams case. So that whole article that I talked about much earlier, that became a book called The Evidence of Things Not Seen. It's kind of sort of a report type of book, a Baldwin's take on what 
you believe um, happened to Wayne Williams, the person that was convicted of these, these murders, but at the same time, what was happening in Atlanta, Georgia, this all major black city, and how that affected and changed that particular city with that particular case. Um, any of Baldwin's essays, any day, any essay that you want, you know, The Cross of Redemption is a book that has a lot of uncollected stories and things and some of the things that didn't get printed. And that's a great book to have, um, The Cross of Redemption. It's a series of essays, stories around Baldwin. And that's really good. And of course, The Price of the Ticket is always a good one because The Price of the Ticket has a number of novels all in one book. So you can have that. So obviously, go back to it again. Um, tell me how long the train's been gone, price of the ticket, evidence of things not seen, and the cross of redemption would be just four recommendations. And that's, that's not even, that's not even scratching the surface. But just try to give people a way to get in. And for young 13-year-olds, I'm putting the age of that. If you don't read any of the other things that I mentioned, the fire next time, it's only really two essays. First essay is written to his 13, or was, was about 13, 14, his teenage nephew. And the second part is called, it's kind of sort of a dissertation to America on what we need to do in order to heal ourselves. And the book closes with this wonderful thing that everybody says no more water, the fire next time. If we don't get this thing together. I like that. I like that a lot. Let us know how we can support or see. What, how we should check for James Baldwin and Soul on Fire? Sure. Um, well, one, you can always buy the book on Amazon. That's always there. You can always go to my webpage, uh, which is simply very easy, charlesreesexperience.com. It's spelled out just like that. Reese is with an S. So charlesreesexperience.com. Of course, you can catch me on um, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at the Charles Reese Experience. Everything is just spelled out in one word. <laughs> And everything will just pop up. I try to keep everything on the same level. But my webpage is one of the ways where you can kind of like really touch and base and see where we're going. Um, and um, I will definitely see the information um, that's coming up in Amsterdam. As a matter of fact, I've got to go to a call with Amsterdam right after this. That's good. We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Charles Reese. I appreciate you coming on. And it's good to see Black artists in all lanes doing what they're doing and preserving the legacy of those that, for me, Baldwin is like the godfather. Like you said, his pen game is just, it's crazy. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And please feel free, this is open door policy, to come back to let us know what else we need to be checking out and why. Because I feel like what they're doing against the arts right now is a crime. So we need to put the spotlight on more artists just like yourself. So thank you very much. On this History of Being Black podcast, you can. Always, as usual, make sure you follow us on the History Being Black Instagram. Make sure you follow the episode. It's on Spotify, Apple Music, and all places where you can get podcasts. As usual, you can hit me up on any social media platform at Jayhawk Society. I feel like my blackness has been elevated. Thank you, Charles Reese, for elevating that. I hope your blackness has been elevated in this conversation. As usual, be blessed and successful. We'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. 
Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at the History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production.